Welcome back, everybody, to another in our MarTech interview series. Uh, today, uh, we are, uh, this is a little bit of a shift in gears for us, uh, but we are going to talk to Jen LeBlanc. Jen is the CEO and founder of Think Results Marketing, and we're going to talk about her number one Amazon bestseller, uh, Launching for Revenue. This is MarTech Interviews, a podcast from DK New Media, publishers of MarTech the leading publication for sales and marketing professionals to research, discover, and learn how technology is driving business results. Your host is Douglas Carr. Shout out to this week's sponsor, Products Up. Uh, if you're running an online shop, part of your strategy has to be syndicating and distributing your product feeds to marketing and shopping channels across the web. The challenge, of course, is that many destination sites require their own proprietary feed layouts. So you can spend countless hours tweaking and troubleshooting your feeds as well as optimizing the products you want for each channel. ProductsUp is a powerful product data management platform that enables online businesses to gain control, save time, and improve performance. Uh, their platform is utilized by companies like HP, IKEA, Trivago, American Eagle Outfitters, Rakuten, and more. Uh, visit productsup.io and request a demo. There's actually a great explainer video online as well uh, that talks about all that they do. But if you're a marketer in the e-commerce space and you are drowning under the development costs and, and issues associated with your product feeds, you're going to want to check out this product, productsup.io. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to MarTech Interviews. And you might wonder, Doug, why would you have someone that wrote a book uh, about startups or starting a product or service uh, on the show, on a marketing show? And my answer to that would be that a vast majority of my clients uh, are launching, and I think most marketing agencies are launching products or services. That's why they get external help. That's why they get the consulting, and that's why they do it. And so we are absolutely thrilled to have on board today, uh, Jen LeBlanc. And Jen, um, you have an incredible history of helping startups, uh, and I'd love to for you to tell our audience about that, uh, as well as this incredible book, which I have already burned through. How's that? <laughs> How's that? It's absolutely phenomenal, and I was so, so incredibly excited at how much attention you paid on the marketing aspects of, of the launch of a product or service. So maybe start with just your incredible rich history. Well, great. Thanks. It's great to be here, Doug. And, you know, this book really is the culmination of, you know, the last 20 years of stating myself to the problem of why is it that some companies are successful with their launches, whether it's product, service, or the company itself, and other companies fail, and frankly, most of them fail. And, right. You know, 35 to 80%. And then if you are a high, high growth startup, it's like 92%. Wow. On the other hand, companies are getting out, you know, new companies are coming on the market every day, new products, new services. So what's the difference? So my background actually is a scientist. So I sort of become obsessed when a question like that comes in my mind and I have to research it. So this book is the result of doing that research and reading material about you know, what makes companies successful, what makes a one launch successful versus another, our experience working with clients. You know, I've worked with over 40 startups through the Microsoft for Startups program. 
um, and our clients here in Silicon Valley and around the world and sort of really understanding what's making the difference for them. And it became clear to me that there were definitely isolated elements um, and that has coalesced into what's this book for the 10 elements of launch um, as to what these are. You don't have to have all 10 elements perfect, but you have to right. be you know, doing pretty well, you know, have pretty good steering on all of these elements to be successful. And, you know, I can look at examples of companies that have failed because they failed on one or more of these elements. Um, it wasn't that the product wasn't great or the technology wasn't great or the service wasn't great, but their go-to-market strategy was, was flawed in some way. So that's why I created this book because once I realized that this was something that you, know, you could measure and manage, I thought, well, we need to get this out to as many people as possible because I see people fail in this all the time. And what's incredible is that you actually did go through and measure because, you know, most, most advice out there within the industry is fairly anecdotal, right? I, uh, even if you're a startup entrepreneur, oftentimes, you know, there's this intersection of time and luck and money and sales and, uh, and everything else. And, and I watch these entrepreneurs who um, they had one success under their belt but then they're never able to recapitalize on that because they keep doing everything the same way, which lent itself to the timing of their first, you know, startup. And, uh, and so I love the fact that you actually took and scientifically dissected, you know, all of these different elements and then broke it down, measured them and, uh, you know, even provide, you know, the book is just phenomenal, provide an assessment and an action plan for companies to, to move forward. Um, and it was refreshing because um, I, I have, uh, you know, I've started up two companies myself and, uh, and I know why they failed, <laughs> you know? And a lot of times it was because somebody told me to do something that worked for them, yes. you know, but it wasn't necessarily the combination you know, of skills and tactics that I needed to apply. Exactly. And I wanted to make sure that in this book, there was that flexibility that, that I'm not, I'm never going to discount the value of luck in success. Right. It's a big right. piece of it. Luck and timing pay a, play a big piece in it. But, but we don't, we can't control those things. Right. right? Other than, right. you know, luck favors a prepared mind, you know, so we can do that. And timing is what it is. Sometimes we entrepreneurs have ideas that are well ahead of their time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's just how we think and we can't control that. But these elements in the book are things we can control. So it's kind of like health, right? We can't control the things, the genes that we got are the genes that we got, but we can make sure that we're eating right, that we're exercising, that we're managing our stress levels. There's things we can control to deal with the uncontrolled factors. And that's what I wanted to do with this book is the launch process is often extremely messy, extremely chaotic. And that's why I love it. Um, <laughs> extremely messy, chaotic, unknown. People are like, I don't know what to do. They think they know what to do. Someone tells them they should do it because that worked for their company, which isn't right. necessarily correct. Um, but you know, it's a matter of what can we at least try to control and correct for as much as possible. Um, and the self-assessment really allows people to do their own thinking. I don't want to tell them how to do it, but here are some things that I have seen over many companies, not just one or two, but you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of companies of my own experience and research, proprietary research we've done, research that I've studied for the last 20 years. 
So it's not just one company. It's a very broad section of all sizes from two person companies to 200,000 person companies. You know, what is it that, that they can control in that launch process to make it less messy, less chaotic and more predictable? Well, and every single chapter has use cases. Mm -hmm. Every, uh, I should say, I, I want to pay this compliment as well because uh, every single chapter You're making has, me blush. <laughs> every single chapter has color too. Yes. And uh, we had, uh, you know, full disclosure, we had a pre-discussion about this podcast. And I was amazed to find out that uh, you launched a business to launch your book. To <laughs> yes. yes. To get it done the right way. Yes, yes. Because I had a very specific vision for this book when I was, before I started writing it. And I, you know, certainly I'm, I'm in marketing, right? So we do color printing, we do black and white printing. I know color is more expensive. I had no idea that it was so much more expensive to publish a book in color. And so then I had to go back and rewrite some things to make, you know, the book affordable in black and white or, you know, more reasonable in black and white. Um, you know, and say, well, this, this part of the logo is green and this part is blue because, of course, that's not how I wrote it. I wrote it, just, you know, look at the upper part of the logo and the lower part of the logo. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely was, it was a very complex book, for sure. My, my uh, <clears throat> book designer is still recovering. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but it lends itself, you know, a, a lot of books, you know, you're just deep in thought, kind of textual, and you're creating those visions in your head. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm loving it so much is because this is a really easy book because the visuals are there and stand right. out. And, and that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted this to be something, A, that you didn't have to read cover to cover. You could, you know, if you know that your website is your weak point, you can just dive in and start right. with the website. Like each one of those chapters is completely independent from each other. Um, so people can just dive in. And I've talked with several um, entrepreneur startups who've, founders who, you know, picked up the book and they're like, oh my God, this is so great. Cause I could like dive into the three areas I know were weak. Right. And kind of, you know, get my brain thinking and then go back and start, you know, front to back. Um, Cause I wanted it to be more, you know, very practical, tactical workbook style with examples of what to do, what not to do, because it's great. This is what you should do. Well, that doesn't always work. Well, what should I not be doing? Right? right. So I wanted to give both the case studies of examples and use cases of what to do and what, what not to do and make it very visual and as tactile as I can possibly make a book um, into sort of something that they could, you know, grab their pen and start writing it out. People have bought the ebook and said, oh, I had to go and buy the book because I didn't realize how much it was sort of you know, me working on my own stuff in the book. It was a guide yeah. to, you know, gathering me through my own process. Now, I want to, obviously, I want to tease this book as much as possible within the podcast without, um, without spilling, you know, the candy. Uh, um, we want people to go out and buy it. Um, but uh, what I was really impressed with, and I thank you for, is as a marketing, you know, agency and a consultant that helps startups, um, I really see these startups that, you know, start, stall, start, stall, start, stall. And then as they're running out of time and money, they call me because they finally figure out that marketing, you know, isn't where it needs to be. And they, and they figure out, they never thought that they needed it. They thought if they had a problem and they had an incredible solution, that marketing would take care of its own. It would just, everything would explode. And your book really um, draws some lines in this. I think it was 31% of the marketing or 30% of the overall budget on average of the companies that you're working with go to marketing resources. Um, I mean, that's, 
that that tells you how important that is to mitigate that that risk of failure. Um, and then about half the chapters are are talking about you know everything from positioning and sales and uh, logo and content, social media. You know you you're pulling together you know basically and this is and and I know I'm rattling on, but it's because I'm so passionate about it and so excited about this because I've seen these companies that launch incredible and it's because they had their marketing piece functioning from day one. They had that go-to-market strategy and that voice and everything kind of figured out. And then I've seen the other companies that have built incredible products and services. They're intelligent people, well-funded everything, but everything just kind of trickled to a stop. And, uh, and I'd, I'd love for you to, you know, that's why you're on this show is because marketing is absolutely so critical to anybody launching any type of product or service. Um, can you speak to, you know, those 40 companies that you've worked with and, and where you, you know, maybe even give some failures out there that where people just miss the mark on marketing? Absolutely. And, you know, that's, you know, like I said before, why I wanted to get this book out because I've seen those examples and thought, you know, that is a great technology, never made it to market. And it wasn't because it was great technology. It's because they, they thought everyone was going to beat a path to their door. And that didn't happen. Right. Right. They ran out of money and then, you know, sometimes started to do marketing too late. And by then, you know, it's, it's done, right? The game is over. Um, you know, there's examples of, you know, some of those companies in Microsoft um, for startups, for example, that you know, I'm thinking of one, for example, that there were issues in the team, you know, the founder team um, and, you know, great product market readiness, timing was there, you know, everything was in position, but, you know, they couldn't stop the infighting. Mm. Um, and so that ended up, you know, causing the demise of the company. Um, you know, there's examples of, you know, not really being able to get that integrated sort of content strategy together um, and having it come out, like you said, kind of jaggedy and sort of in pieces. Um, and then that just doesn't really coalesce in the market because the market's a little confused about, well, what, are you this or are you that? Right. Um, you know, for me, positioning is, is critical. You know, the first chapter is about product because, you know, from a marketing perspective, if your product isn't working, go back and make that work. Right. Um, it can't just work on Tuesdays when it's raining, um, <laughs> which, you know, I have had that happen. And then, um, the second thing, you know, once the product is down to the services, you know, you have that sort of defined and nailed is your positioning. And I see this is a big stumbling block for a lot of companies. They just don't have a clear value proposition. And it's not, you know, it's mostly, at least I find in tech, it's just not clear. Like I get yeah. to their website and I think, okay, I've been here for five minutes and I still have no idea what you do. <laughs> it should not take me five minutes to figure that out. <laughs> you know, the average website user is going to be on your homepage for nine seconds. You don't have a lot of time. Right. Make it clear. Make it easy for them to get who you are and what it is that you do right away. So I think that is, you know, often the big stumbling block. And if you don't get that foundational piece into position, all of the other elements tend to sort of stumble along in, in your sort of right. example. Um, so I think if they only focus on one thing and like focus on your positioning and make sure that you have that down pat. And a lot of companies just skip over that. 
And it, well, and I'm guessing that your positioning for your investors is totally different in the positioning for your market. <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I think that there should be an overarching message about, you know, who the company is, what they stand for, you know, what difference they're making in the world, right? Right. You know, this company is solving problem X and the world's going to be different because we solve this problem in this way. That is a message that you're giving to your market. You're giving to your PR reporters, right. you're giving that to investors, you're giving that to everyone. But then you may tell specific stories or examples that will be more relevant for those audiences, right? Just like you would for an industry, right? You may say, you know, our key message is, I'm going to make this up, customer service. Um, you may tell that story differently about how you deliver customer service for your energy clients than you do for your high-tech clients, right? right? You're going to give them examples that are relevant to them. Uh, so that's, you know, something that is sometimes a way to kind of connect those individual, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations is, yes, you're going to want to customize your stories and examples for who you're talking to, but that should tie back to a larger overall corporate message and story. Yeah. I was, I was, uh, I was being a little bit sarcastic with my, <laughs> because I, I love the websites that are, you know, we're a, you know, audience engagement, you know, product that uh, is omni-channel and utilize the latest in machine learning and AI to, <laughs> you know, it's the buzzword. Deliver Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Buzz, buzzword bingo, you know. Right. Uh, Watching technology, exactly. Yeah, and, and those are the companies that I, I, I tend to stare at and I go, I don't understand what it is. That what you do you do? do? Right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, what yeah. problem are you solving? Yeah. Well, I love that you, you're boiling it down to that. What, uh, you know, what's changed, you know, with, with the, uh, you know, your rich history uh, in, in helping startups, what's changed, you know, maybe over the last decade, what's, what's evolved, you know, so much more that it takes a lot more attention today than it did, you know, maybe 10 years ago. That's a good question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is social media. I mean, 10 years ago, we were sort of at the beginning stages of this. I think I joined Facebook in like 2008 or 2009, I can't remember. Um, you know, that's something that we didn't have as a tool before. Uh, so that, that's been great because it's made it possible for even the smallest startups to connect with an audience broadly. Yeah. A very reasonable cost. Um, it still takes, you know, money to think about, you know, what's your editorial calendar and your strategy and, you know, develop the right content for your audience. But it's really opened it up for smaller companies in terms of leveling the playing fields because they have, you can own your channel, which yeah. we used to have to go through, you know, TechCrunch or somebody else to get that message out. There's there, that middleman is still there and still valuable, but we have direct channels to our customers now in ways that we didn't have before social media. And uh, that, so that, an that I love. That's an incredible example that, you know, if you have a, you know, if you're B2B, you can go straight into an industry forum on LinkedIn and have conversations and, or just maybe even observe and, you know, capture yes. a ton of information and research. Right. Not know. only sort of watch your target market and sort of understand what their concerns are and listen to some of those forums and see yeah. where some of their recurring themes but you can easily go out there and get direct feedback from your customers and your potential customers in a way that we couldn't do, you know, yeah. and we could kind of do it 10 years ago, but it was a bit of a stretch. Then there weren't so many people on social media as there are now. 
<laughs> and it was kind um, of early then. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, and and I, I love that the the focus of the book is obviously launch, and not necessarily startup, right? Because startup can be you can be five years in and still be a startup, you know, I guess technically. Right. Um, but you're talking about a period, you know, of, of incredible productivity and decisiveness. How long, you know, do you want people when they're working through your book and working through this, how long do, should they be taking, you know, to, to kick off their, their product or service? So I'd say, um, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's not just for startups. I mean, we do a lot of work with Intel. We've worked with SAP, yeah. some of the largest companies in the world, and they still have to launch new products and new services into new markets. So it's a similar process. And sometimes it's a launch, sometimes it's a repositioning. So that's a relaunch, essentially. Yep. Um, so like, you know, Uber just announced their relaunch um, with their new logo. Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of spans the gamut from like the tiny two person startup all the way up to some largest companies in the world, but they're all trying to, we call them our change agents. They're all trying to do something new, either create a new company with a new product or service, or they're trying to get a new product or service into a new market, but they're part of a larger company. Um, and, you know, I have, I joke about this with clients and, and I say this all the time, but you know, I have tried to bend the physics of time and space and make this work. And despite 20 years of very earnest effort, I have <laughs> not been able to change the physics of time and space. And so what I have found, and nobody, especially in Silicon Valley, ever wants to hear this, but you need to look at six to nine months before you really begin to change a market. I'm not saying that you won't make movement in maybe three to four months. Right. But a, a lasting change in a market takes about six to nine months to make. Um, and like I said, my Silicon Valley clients are always like, oh, really? Because, you know, here that's like three lifetimes, right? <laughs> um, I'm like, yes. And, you know, yes, we can make movement and we can make progress. But if you're looking for a lasting impact and change, we need to be planning six to nine months ahead of that. Is part of that that you you really do have to analyze the change, the trends in behavior? I think it's two parts. I think part of it is, you know, and this is, you know, totally my fault, you know, as a scientist, I am totally geeky and I like to really research and understand things before we go out and do stuff. I'm not a yep. big fan of like go out and you know, try things completely without any knowledge or understanding of what's happening in the market right now. So there's the analysis and kind of thinking that strategy that goes into before we start the work so that when we do the work, it works. Um, and I think the other piece is just human nature. Mm. Um, it takes time because, you know, all of marketing is trying to get your attention. Right. right? You're doing your thing and I want to get your attention so that you will listen to what I have to say about this product, company, or service. Um, ideally, that's going to be something you want to hear because I've done my work and so this is relevant to you. So that's part of that strategy work. Um, but even if it's relevant to you, and even if it's going to rock your world and change everything and make your work half as, you know, twice as easy, take half as much time as it is now, I'm still asking you to make a change. Yeah. And yeah. so that's kind of the piece where I've sort of given up, you know, it's like, 
I think that there just is a certain amount of time it takes humans to change their mind and change what they do, even if it's going to make life better for them. You know, they say that, you know, getting married is one of the most stressful things you can do. Well, at least in my case, the second time getting married was fantastic, but it was still super stressful, right? right. It was a big change. And so I think the same thing is true with any kind of new product or service. Even if it's going to make my life better, I'm going to have to change what I'm doing now to integrate your products and service into my processes. And that okay. takes some um, thinking before I'm ready to say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to invest the time to make this change so that I can get whatever benefit it is on the back end of that. And, uh, you know, I, I can even provide, you know, some examples of that where culturally, you know, overall we have to change. I, I remember mm -hmm. uh, Louis Lemire, you know, when he first launched Seismic, it was this video kind of Twitter, you know, that you could post a little video of yourself and then you would respond with a video and it was back and forth and back and forth. And it was ingenious. I loved it, you know, and then Adobe popped up and Adobe had a, you know, four channel, you know, where people could gab and everything else. And both of them ultimately failed. It, it wasn't necessarily because they were bad products. Again, they were fantastic products, revolutionary, everything else, but the industry wasn't the people, the consumers ready. weren't ready for that, you know, and then, Timing. And, and so then you see, you know, Snapchat pop up, you know, and now, you know, Facebook, obviously, you know, going after the real time video and YouTube and, you know, and everything else. Well, now it's finally where culturally people aren't afraid of getting on screen and, you know, and, uh, and, and talking to each other. But back then it was so, you know, Oh my God, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn on the camera. <laughs> video right and you know it's so funny because i mean i think every year for like the last eight years i've been saying you know in the marketing world this is the year of video and then i i was talking with a client actually at the end of last year and i said you know i really think 2018 is going to be the year of video and she laughed and i'm like no no i really think it's going to be the year that we actually do this this time because we've been saying that for you know ridiculous number of years but i do think that that really has shifted now so i think you know those early sort of video based products again that's sort of a timing thing right there may yeah. have been some other elements i haven't analyzed those examples but may have been some other elements they can control but there is you know, like I said, I'm not going to discount the value of timing and luck. Right. There is a big right. piece of that. Well, and having I, I the mean, market be ready. Here we are. We're, we're sitting on a podcast. Podcasting is, you know, two decades old, but it's right. only really coming to fruition now because of mobile bandwidth and cars, you know, and, you know, only now is it simple, you know, to go search and find any podcast and, and download and listen to it. So the, the funny thing is, is 20 years it sat there, you know, building mm -hmm. momentum, you know, but f finally, you know, now we're we there. needed the, the infrastructure sometimes right. to support these things. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of my um, contributors to my next book, which we're, we're not going to get into, but um, <laughs> she worked at, at Palm Pilot and, you know, she said, he had a very early vision of, you know, what, what mobile technology was going to look like. Um, but it was a little bit ahead of its time. Right. But we're not quite ready for that. And so I think that's part of, you know, some of the issues with, you know, Palm Pilot. But, you know, she talks about kind of the, the CEO, the founder walking around with like a wooden mock-up with yeah. balsa sticks, you know, like popsicle sticks with the with the little antenna you know that flipped up yeah and he had a, a, a stylus that was a chopstick yeah 
and how he would use that to talk about this because there was no concept of that we would carry these computers in our hands, right. Right? right? And so he would talk about that and you know show his little popsicle stick and you know chopstick example so people could visualize this. And so right. I think that's probably why he was successful and he would bring it to market at all. But we didn't really have you know the the five G and and the memory and all of those things that we really needed. I think for him to fulfill the vision that he had in his head, you know, he got the hardware, yeah, but the infrastructure and software wasn't there yet. Well, and ultimately there was, I mean, there was guys like me that had one. <laughs> I love my Palm Pilot. <laughs> I did too, but I didn't mind being the geek holding it. Yes. But the average consumer did mind that. They didn't right. want to look that way. And right. so it's a perfect example of, you know, that we had to change the culture of consumers Yes. you know, before they, you know, got through and stare at machines all day. <laughs> right. And the same is true of wearables, right? I mean, you know, the yes. geeking among us wear our Fitbits, but, <laughs> you know, we, I've had many conversations with women who like don't want to wear that because it doesn't, you know, it, I, I can't have a different look every day, right? It doesn't right. always work with what I'm wearing. You know, it's, they're often built for men, they're larger, you know, they're not comfortable for smaller wrists. So there's all these things which would go into your product design. Um, you know, that we need to think about in order to, yes, the technology works. It does. Right. It totally right. works, you know. But think about what your users actually want in order to integrate this technology into their lives. And sometimes right. those early, you know, revs don't necessarily have all of the user requirements that we need to make right. them be very successful. Right. I think there's a big market that nobody's filled yet for more flexible visually wearables yeah so that they don't look quite so geeky i don't care about looking like a geek i'm a geek i'm proud of it i live in silicon valley it's fine <laughs> um you know i feel a little uncomfortable sometimes when i travel because you know i got my phone and i got my fitbit and i've got all these like wires coming out of me yeah <laughs> you know so I, it's like oh my god yeah i'm from silicon valley and so you know there's definitely you know, it's the early adopter thing, right? From Jeffrey Moore, yes. you know, I'm kind of the early adopter on those things. And in order for this to get to the mass majority, we need to do a better job at listening to what's not working about our technology in the market right now, because there's a lot of people that don't want to look like that. They want the technology to fit into their lives, yeah. not the other way around. That's uh, brilliant insight. That's absolutely incredible insight. Um, I, I, um, my, here's my last question, and, and it's just because you brought it up. I'm curious, working within Silicon Valley, adoption is, is, is almost a, well, obviously, adoption is a culture there. You know, whereas I, I'm, I live in the Midwest, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a perfect example. We just got scooters in town. And it was, uh, all the scooters came into town. Within a week, they were all outlawed. And, and taken off. And then the tech community, of course, screamed at the government and said, stop, we've got to be, you know, and then after some legislation and everything else, then, you know, they were slowly allowed back in. And now, now we have them. And it's just so culturally in the Midwest, the first thing I even talked to the mayor's office, the first thing the mayor said was, I'm going to get sued the city is going to get sued when somebody rides without a helmet and slams into one of our monuments. And, right. and we don't have a budget for that. We don't have any legal precedents. We don't have anything. And so it's a very risk averse, you know, kind of look mm -hmm. at it. And they were, they were pushed over by the tech community, you know, to adopt. 
But I'm curious, just with what you were saying, is, is, is it sometimes a bubble if you launch within Silicon Valley? Oh, heck that yes. it, <laughs> You didn't even have to think about that. <laughs> oh, no, we, we live in a very, very weird part of the world here. Um, you know, and, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, so when you are trying to, you know, get early feedback, it's a great place to launch yeah. technology, but you are going to get it fairly sophisticated and easy to overlook the issues. You know, it is a culture of early adopters. So we tend to overlook the issues um, and just sort of deal with it because we're curious and want to understand how this technology works. That's not how most people think. Right. Um, and so sometimes there is definitely an insular sort of feeling in Silicon Valley of, well, but everybody does it that way. No, no, just the people that you know in Silicon Valley, which is not the world, honey. Yeah. Um, and so I do have that conversation sometimes with, with, with clients. I mean, my family's back in, in Victoria, which, you know, is an island. So Yeah, I love Victoria. Yes, let me tell you, when I go back there, I am very aware of my Silicon Valley habits and attributes. Uh, because I have expectations about how things should happen. And that yeah. doesn't always happen in slow, sleepy Victoria. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's certainly, it kind of, it's good because it reminds me, you know, when I travel outside Silicon Valley, what I know to be true, but it reminds me in my gut of what is really true about how the rest of the world thinks. Because we do sometimes tend to forget and we think, you know, Silicon Valley is the center of the universe. Um, but to your point, actually, there was a very interesting conversation. I was at the AI conference last week in San Francisco with, with Intel, and there was a presenter there. Um, I think it was my Fuli. He has a new book that's coming out. And he talked about, you know, his book is all about the twin powers of Silicon Valley and China driving the AI industry. Mm -hmm. And his thesis is... You know, you here in the U.S., you have the best minds in AI and machine learning, no doubt. Um, and you have built some amazing technology, but you have some policy problems. So he said, you know, autonomous trucking, this was his example, which sort of rocked me back on my heels, was, you know, autonomous trucking was built here. It's ready to go. That is a technology that is ready to roll. And he said, here in the U.S., that has been nixed by the trucking union. Yeah. He said, in China, we have built two cities, built two cities for autonomous trucking. That made the hair come back in my back of my neck. Because yeah. he said, our philosophy around policy is let's try it. Yeah. So there's a very different sort of feeling. So I guess in one city, they've built sensors along the road to integrate autonomous trucking with regular cars. And then in the other city, they've built two levels. Wow. Autonomous trucking, regular driving. And he joked, and I think he's right, he said, I don't know, five years, maybe 10, we're not going to be allowed to drive ourselves anymore. Right. We are dangerous. Yes. So it was very interesting because he said, you know, first of all, we have a larger population and, you know, AI is a data problem. So we have a huge population. We've got lots of capital. We have, you know, lots of data. And, and we have this attitude of let's try it. So he said, it may happen that this technology gets built in the U.S., but then takes off at scale in China because we don't have the barriers in terms of yeah. policies and to adopting these technologies. And I thought, wow, that sort of rearranged my brain a little bit about. Well, it, it's interesting you say this. that because I, I, I made a comment online a while back and it was, uh, I think it was Uber was testing autonomous cars Yes. and someone had gotten killed in an accident. Yeah. And of course it's front page news everywhere. And 
you know, my comment was, you know, what about the 22,000 people that got killed by humans driving? Humans driving over other people. Exactly. We don't, you know, we don't and, put that in the papers. Right. But it's not a spectacular news story. And so I, I almost feel like we tend to have this, you know, um, you know, I don't want to be the media blamer or anything, but fear works, right? And fear makes right. a great story. And so you throw these, you know, these Terminator type you know, stories out there where people think the machines are taking over and going to kill them. Yes. When in fact, like you said, you know, minimal impact. And it's, you know, I, I, I do see from time to time, I, I, I always share with, uh, I've shared with a couple of people, I went on a cross country trip and I rented like one of these brand new Chrysler Pacifica minivans. And it was almost autonomous. Like it would right. change, it would stay in lanes, it would detect wow. everything. It would um, it would slow to a stop and go up on cruise control. So it was adaptive cruise control. And, nice. and here I was, never had ridden in a vehicle that much, but I can tell you within hours I was comfortable, you know, right. and, and I felt safe and I felt safer than had I just been right. driving on my own account. And so I do think that one of the, good things that I do see is we are pulling people along, you know, yes. and, hope, and hopefully we get there, but, but yeah. It's well, when they can experience like that, yeah. you know, kind of really not just understand it, but actually experience it. I think yeah. that is when you begin to see the shift. So when we're able to get that technology in front of more people so they can experience what it's like, as opposed to what people tell them it's like, yeah. then they have a different you know opinion of it. All right. And to your point, you know, that can take nine months to, you know, basically sit down and do that research and see whether those consumers or businesses are ready. Uh, I have a, a company that we're taking care of that uh, takes care of water quality. Well, no municipality ever had tracking software for water quality. And so... That was my former life, so I'm aware of that. Yeah, yeah and so their biggest hurdle wasn't that they had a great product and everything else. Their biggest hurdle is getting city managers to recognize that they need a system, you know, that this is good, a good, yeah. a valuable system. It's a change of process, right? They yeah. have to change the way they've done business, even though this is going to help them over time because certainly right. want to be tracking that water quality over time. That was my former life was water quality analysis and ecology. Um, but if you don't know kind of what this particular river water quality was like, Literally, I do this manually, but, you know, go back five years and yeah. you know, last year, five, you know, year over year and five years ago and 10 years ago, is there a trend? You know, are we seeing more phosphorus? Are we seeing more mercury? Right. Are we seeing less? Like you, you can't really manage the water if you don't know what those trends are. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Um, Jen, I, I want to also uh, put a pointer in here that you are absolutely well known in the Bay Area as a strong advocate for advancing women in science and technology. Um, first, thank you for that. Um, as a business owner that had a partner that was female that she just launched her own agency and I'm so very proud. In fact, she's up for an award here in Indianapolis. Nice. I'm going I'm to call her out, Jen Lisak. Um, nice. and I'm, and I'm, look, her first name is Jen. So she's gotta be, she, she's gotta be great. You're also a former member and longtime advisor of women in consulting's leadership network, uh, and the co-lead for watermark women like us program. Uh, you're a mentor. You speak regularly about best practices in consulting and business. 
Um, you have spoken just about everywhere on women in business as well as startups. Um, so, uh, you know, for everybody out there, the reason why I'm saying all these glowing things is we have a star on the show and I'm, <laughs> and I really, really, really am thankful for you to take the time with us. Um, I, one we will have within the show notes, the book is called launching for revenue. Again, it's a number one Amazon bestseller right now. Um, you can get it. Uh, Jen, thank you. You autographed your copy to me. So I am, uh, forever thankful for that. Uh, and then, uh, we'll have a link within the show notes on that. And then where else can people, uh, find you, listen to you, uh, meet you, et cetera, either online or offline. So the book is on Amazon. So that's a good place to get the book. And there's the ebook version. There's a color version and then there's a black and white version. So it depends on kind of what you like. I highly recommend the color version. Color. So much nicer. You are absolutely correct. But it does cost a little more than black and white because it costs more to produce as I yeah. said, you're shocked. Um, and then if they're in, if, if anyone's in Silicon Valley, like I'm speaking next uh, Wednesday, I'm doing a panel on launching for revenue with a VC and an angel, a colleague of mine. And so I'm regularly speaking in the Bay Area. And sometimes I'm speaking up in Seattle. So that I, I kind of tend to stick to the West Coast, but I'm happy to come yeah. wherever. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's generally where I'm at. And then on our website, list everywhere that I'm going to be. So that's jennifersleblanc.com. And you can find out sort of where I'm going to be for the next few months there. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us. This is uh, for everybody. Again, the book is a perfectly segmented book to pick up walk through, assess yourself, see use cases, put together an action plan and launch with, you know, mitigating all of the risk associated with these stressful, stressful launches. So congratulations on the book and thank you. It's a incredible gift to give back to the community too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's been a pleasure and uh, I've enjoyed it. The MarTech Interviews podcast is recorded at DK New Media's state-of-the-art podcast studio at the Speakeasy in downtown Indianapolis. Subscribe at martech.zone. Sponsorships and marketing services are available through dknewmedia.com.